0: Start by reviewing a little bit where we finished last uh, last time. Um, we discussed the first section of the novel, the first eleven chapters, which end with uh, Huck running away from his father and running away from the town of St. Petersburg and to the island of Jackson's Island, where he meets Jim, the runaway slave, and in the course of that meeting, uh, Huck go, wants to go into town and find out what's going on. He goes into town, and he meets this lady, Julius, uh, Julian, uh, Mrs. Loftus, and uh, Mrs. Loftus tells him that her husband and some other men are out uh, hunting the runaway slave, and Huck goes back to the island and tells Jim, they're after us. Let's go. They're after us. Um, the interesting thing about that is he says, us, not you. Uh, And Huck, of course, is not in any trouble. Uh, His father is is what he's afraid of, but his father uh, reported him dead after he ran away, and the town thinks he's dead. They sent the uh, steamboat after him to try to make the body rise, and it didn't, of course. But Huck Huck is out of the woods as far as that's concerned. But he identifies with Jim and says, they're after us. So the theme of the first third of the book, from the moment his father shows up, is Huck's step-by-step disengagement from the local society, partly his own doing, partly his father's doing. Uh, he gives up his money. Uh, he is moved. Uh, of his father forces him to leave school, um, leave the widow Douglas's house. His father takes him out of the town of uh, St. Petersburg to a cabin on the Illinois side which means he takes him out of the town, but he takes him out of the slave state, Missouri, into a free state, uh, Illinois, and then the next step is Huck's own. He runs away from his father to the uninhabited Jackson's Island, and then the last step, he and Jim are ready to run off together. So that's where we are uh, at this moment. Beginning with Chapter 12 is the second part of the novel, The long 20 chapters describing the journey down the river on a raft with Huck and Jim, And between those raft segments are segments ashore. Uh, This this series of 20 chapters, chapters 12 through 31, can be described as subdivided into five sections of adventures on shore, plus... Some discussion, some discussion, including three chapters of Huck and Jim and their growing and changing relationship between each other. So there are really two uh, two kinds of chapters in this section. The first one is the um, Huck and Jim on the raft. And it's not difficult to see that what Twain did in these chapters on the raft, was to create a kind of a miniature Eden, uh, Eden on wood planks. By contrast, the places that they go when they are on shore are one kind of hell after another. And in the course of the section, Huck. Uh, invites the king and the duke, we'll get to them in a moment, the king and the duke to come aboard the raft, which is equivalent to inviting the snake into the Garden of Eden. And they corrupt it and eventually destroy it. Uh, that's basically the outline of what happens in this whole big long second section. Huck is no longer regarding himself or as regarded by anybody else as anything but an outcast. Someone not part of the Society of the riverbank, And at the end of this section, Huck is faced with a choice as to how he's going to proceed in the last part of the novel. All those are things we'll get to talk about a little bit later tonight. So let's start first with Chapter 12 and the um, chapter called Better Let Blame Well Alone. And Chapter 13, the chapter called Honest Loot from the Walter Scott. Well, first, the thing about those chapter titles, I don't know whether your editions have chapter titles. Uh, In the Embraio edition, are there chapter titles, somebody say?
1: Not within the book itself, but the Table of Contents did, as I remember, as I recall. Yes, that's
0: correct.
1: But not that when you went to Chapter 12, I couldn't remember the names because I knew you might ask me, and I would have to look at the Table of Contents. (laughs) That's right. But they did. Okay, now that's interesting.
0: Yeah. The original version of the novel, the original publication, didn't, in, at least in America, did not have the chapter titles at all. Some versions of the novel have it, others do not. And the big question is, who made up the chapter titles, and how come if Twain made them up, and it sure sounds like he did from the titles, why weren't they in the original edition? And I can't answer that question. But I would almost bet my boots that Mark Twain created those chapter titles, even if they weren't used in the original edition of the novel, uh, which came out in February 1885 in the United States. Uh, Incidentally, Huckleberry Finn was first published abroad. It was published in England in uh, November or December of 1884, a good two or three months before it came out in America. So uh, this most American of all great American novels actually was published first in England. Just a. uh, little sidelight. All right. I'm going to read out loud some of the material that makes up the first part of Chapter 12. Better let Blaine well alone. Huck is narrating. It must have been close on to 1 o'clock when we got below the island at last, and the raft did seem to go mighty slow. If a boat was to come along, we was going to take a chance, take the canoe, rather, and break for the Illinois shore. And it was well a boat didn't come we had never thought to put the gun in the canoe, or a fishing line, or anything to eat, we was in rather too much of a sweat to think of so many things, and weren't good judgment to put everything on the raft. If the men went to the island as I just expect, they found the campfire I built, watched it all night for Jim to come, and anyways, they stayed away from us, and if my building the fire never fooled them, weren't no fault of mine, I played it as low down on them as I could. When the first streak of day began to show, we tied up to a towhead in a big bend on the Illinois side, and hacked off cottonwood branches with a hatchet, and covered up the raft with them, so she looked like there had been a cave-in in the bank there. A towhead is a sandbar with cottonwoods on it, thick as harrow teeth. We had mountains on the Missouri shore and heavy timber on the Illinois side and the channel down the Missouri shore at that place, so we weren't afraid of anybody running across us. We laid there all day and watched the rafts and the steamboats spin down the Missouri shore and the upbound steamboats fight the big river in the middle. I told Jim all about the time I had that jabbering with that woman. Jim said she was a smart one, and if she was to start after us herself, she wouldn't have sat down and watched the campfire. No, sir, she'd fetch a dog. Well, then I said, why couldn't she tell her husband to fetch a dog? Jim said he bet she did think of it by the time the men was ready to start. And he believed they must have gone uptown to get a dog, and so they lost all that time. Or else we wouldn't be here on a towhead 16, 17 miles below the village. No, indeedy, we'd be back in that same old town again. So I said I didn't care what was the reason they didn't get us, as long as they didn't. And now from here, we get the descriptions of life on the raft. When it was beginning to come on dark, we poked our heads out of the cottonwood thicket and looked up and down and across, nothing in sight. So Jim took up some of the top planks of the raft and built a snug wigwam to get under in blazing weather and rainy, and to keep the things dry. Jim made a floor for the wigwam and raised it a foot or more above the level of the raft, so now the blankets and all the traps was out of reach of steamboat waves. Right in the middle of the wigwam, we made a layer of dirt about five or six inches deep with a frame around it for it to hold its place, and this was to build a fire in sloppy weather, or chilly. The wigwam would keep it from being seen. We made an extra steering oar, too, because one of the others might get broke on a snag or something. We fixed up a short fork stick to hang the old lantern on, because we must always light a lantern whenever we see a steamboat coming downstream keep from getting run over. But we wouldn't have to light it for upstream boats unless we see we was in what they call a crossing. For the river was pretty high yet, very low banks being still a little underwater, so the upbound boats didn't run the channel, they just hunted easy water. The second night, we run between seven and eight hours the current that was making over four mile an hour. We catched fish and talked, and we took a swim now and then to keep off sleepiness. Kind of solemn, drifting down the big, still river, laying on our backs, looking up at the stars. And we didn't even feel like talking loud. And it weren't often that we laughed, only a little kind of low chuckle. We had mighty good weather as a general thing, and nothing ever happened to us at all that night, nor the next nor the next. Every night we passed towns, some of them way up on Black Hillsides, nothing but just a shining bed of lights, not a house you could see. The fifth night we passed Saint Louis, and it was like the whole world lit up. In St. Petersburg they used to say there was twenty or thirty thousand people in St. Louis, but I never believed it till I see that wonderful spread of lights at two o'clock that still night. Why not a sound there? Everybody was asleep. Every night now, I used to slip ashore toward 10 o'clock at some little village and buy 10 or 15 cents worth of meal or bacon or stuff to eat. And sometimes I lifted a chicken that weren't roosting comfortable and took him along. Pap always said, take a chicken whenever you get a chance, because if you don't want them yourself, you can easily find somebody that does. And a good deed ain't never forgot. But, of course, I never see Pap when he didn't want the chicken for himself. Mornings before daylight, I slipped into the cornfields and borrowed a watermelon or a a mushmelon or a pumpkin or some kind of new corn or things of that kind. Pap always said it weren't no harm to borrow things if he was meaning to pay them back sometime, but the widow said it weren't nothing but a soft name for stealing. No decent body would do it. Jim said he reckoned the widow was partly right and Pap was partly right, so the best way would be for us to pick out two or three things from the list and say we wouldn't borrow them anymore. Then he reckoned it wouldn't be no harm to borrow the others. So we talked it over all one night, drifting along down the river, trying to make up our minds whether to drop the watermelons or the cantaloupes or the muskmelons or what. But towards daylight, we got it all settled satisfactory and concluded to drop crab apples and persimmons. We weren't feeling just right before that, but it was all comfortable now. I was glad the way it came come out, too, because crab apples ain't ever good, and persimmons wouldn't be ripe for two or three months yet. We shot a waterfowl now and then that got up too early in the morning or didn't go to bed early enough in the evening. Take it all round, we live pretty high. Eden on a raft, eight paragraphs. Mark Twain was such a genius that he was able to create the image of an Eden on the ocean on the river, rather, in only eight paragraphs of prose. One of the remarkable things about Huckleberry Finn is the is extreme economy of means. Uh, I mentioned last week that Pap contains, Pap's uh, part of the novel is only 21 pages out of a 300-something page book, and yet he's unfamiliar, and unforgettable, I should say. Uh, Judith Loftus only appears uh, as a talker. We never have any idea what she looks like. We don't know anything about her except she's about 40 years old, but her character is indelible. Once you've read it, you never forget it. This is not commonly the way people think of Mark Twain as a writer. It's one of the reasons I consider him a much greater writer than most people think he is. He's generally considered to be long-winded and uh, convoluted and not, uh, not to the point and whatever. And, boy, this is certainly not true in this book. Uh, Huckleberry Finn has, and I point it out again extreme, extreme examples of economy of means, of the short and to the point and perfectly, descri- perfectly described things that leave this tremendous impact and only in a very short period of time. All right. That Eden section can be described as the transition into the action of the second part of the novel which begins with the paragraph starting the fifth night below St. Louis. We had a big storm after midnight, with a power of thunder and lightning, and the rain poured down in a solid sheet. What do they see in the course of the storm? A steamboat that had killed herself on a rock. We was drifting straight down for her. Lightning showed her very distinct. She was leaning over with part of her upper deck above water. You could see every little chimney guy, clean and clear, in the chair by the big bell an old slouch hat hanging on the back of it when the lightning flashes come? All right, what's Huck's reaction to this? He thinks of Tom Sawyer, and he says, Hey, Jim, let's land on her and see what we can pick up. Maybe we can get some good stuff out of the captain's cabin. Um, maybe cigars worth five cents apiece. Jim didn't want to do it. Tom, you think Tom Sawyer would ever go buy this thing, says Huck? Not for pie, wouldn't he would call it an adventure? That's what he'd call it. And he'd land on that record that was his last act. And wouldn't he throw style into it? Wouldn't he spread himself, no nothing? Well, at this point, Huck still sees Tom, as he always does in the course of the novel, as the ideal that he can never live up to. Actually, of course, Huck is a much deeper, a much finer person than Tom, but Huck, for one, doesn't recognize that. And I fear to say... Many readers of Mark Twain's novels don't recognize it either. Uh, they take Huck as Huck thinks of himself, rather than reading what Huck thinks and what Huck does and seeing the difference between Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer laid out in front of their eyes. All right, Jim gives in, of course, because Huck is white. Uh, Jim and Huck land on the uh, the uh, deck of the ship, and they go up into the, into the ship and see lights inside the ship, on the boat, I guess you should say. And it turns out that there are three uh, crooks on board, two of whom are about to murder the third. And Huck uh, crawls into his stateroom and listens to what they're saying. Uh, The other two come into the stateroom to talk about what they're going to do. The plan is they're going to let the ship, uh, I should say boat, they're going to let the boat crack up on the rock and drift off down the river, And uh, the third one will be killed, will be drowned, and they won't be responsible for it. Well, this, of course, scares the daylights out of Huck. And he is now going to try to get off the boat. Comes out uh, from the statement and says, Jim. I says, quick, Jim, ain't no time for fooling around and moaning. There's a gang of murderers in yonder. We don't hunt up their boat and set it drifting down the river so these fellows can't get away from the wreck. One of them's going to be in a bad fix. But if we find their boat, we can put all of them in a bad fix. The sheriff will get them. Quick, hurry. I'll hunt the starboard side and you hunt the larboard. I'll hunt the larboard. You hunt the starboard. You start at the raft. And, oh, my lordy Lord! says Jim. Raft? Ain't no raft no more. She done broke loose and gone. And here we end. All right, chapter 13 honest loot from the Walter Scott. At this point, we find out the name of the steamboat. And the name is significant. Walter Scott was, of course, the English, or Scottish, really, Scottish writer who lived in the late 18th and early 19th centuries and was the most popular fiction writer of the uh, American South. Southerners loved Walter Scott and saw themselves as Scotian characters, and uh, their part of America as a kind of a miniature Scotland, or sort a of big Scotland, Neo-Scotland. And they saw themselves as gracious ladies and uh, distinguished gentlemen living in this pair, what would called this uh, perfect idyllic, idyllic world. It was anything but most of the South was very close to savagery. After all, a lot of it hadn't even been settled until after 1815 when the uh, War of uh, of 1812 ended and the power of the Indians was broken. So if the book is set around 1840 as it is, much of the South had not even been settled for 25 years. And that part of it that was settled certainly wasn't settled very, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, to some degree, as Scotland would have been settled after hundreds of years or thousands of years. But Mark Twain realized and believed that the Southerners did not see themselves as they really were. They didn't want to see themselves as they really were. They wanted to see themselves as romantic characters like those of Walter Scott. So when he names the steamboat the Walter Scott, and the Walter Scott is about to break up and crash down the river, in pieces. What does this suggest? It suggests that Mark Twain was not beyond using symbolism in his novels. Now, if you talk to somebody, uh, many critics, and you ask them, what about Mark Twain as a symbolist novelist? They'll say, what? He didn't know how to write symbols. He didn't want to write symbols. He wasn't a symbolist. Well, I don't think that's true. Not in this case. In Life on the Mississippi, one of the chapters of Life on the Mississippi, Sir Walter Scott is indicted by Mark Twain on a charge of helping to, uh, helping to cause the American Civil War. Because, Twain said, only partly tongue-in-cheek, the American Southerners saw themselves as Sc- Scotian characters, didn't see reality, and were trying to defend against the, the Northern Armies a society that never really existed. A, a cultured, uh, you know, a traditional society that was actually just one step from barbarism. And so he blames Sir Walter indirectly for having started the Civil War. Okay. The boat. The Walter Scott is about to crack up. You can see it as a symbol of the South itself. The South, of course... It uh, was not breaking up, but it uh, was bound to come to a bad end as long as it was a minority in the whole Western world holding on to the institution of slavery. It was unique not only in America. By 1840 or so, no other North American nation had slavery. Hardly any other nation in the world had slavery. The British had done away with slavery already, and, in fact, the British Navy was uh, stopping slave ships wherever it found them and said, trying to prevent the spread of slavery. Uh, but the American South continued to see itself as a different society and unwilling to look at itself at the way it really was. Nobody in the South seemed to realize how awful an institution slavery was. And that goes for Sam Clemens as a boy. Samuel Clemens never realized as he said later in life, how awful slavery was because he grew up with it, was used to it, and nobody was there to tell him that there was anything wrong with it. And it wasn't until he was an adult and had seen with his own eyes the rest of the world that he realized that there was something very wrong indeed with slavery. But the average southerner saw nothing wrong with it. And in fact, some southerners went so far in defending slavery that they advised the North to start slavery in place of uh, low-wage workers because they thought slavery was more humane, they said. Nobody starved in slavery in the uh, owner's interest to feed the slave. Uh, The slave, when he was too old to work or too young to work, was fed anyway, clothed anyway. Poorly, but they were. And... Some Southerners actually thought slavery was a better economic system and a more humane economic system than capitalism as it existed in the North. Well, Walter Scott does indeed rake up. Uh, Huck and Jim find the boat that they're looking for. They find it first and get off, leaving the murderers, the gang, the three guys, on the boat. Then something interesting happens in the novel. I quote, Jim manned the oars and we took out after our raft. Now is the first time I've begun to worry about the men on the boat. I reckon I hadn't had time to before. I begun to think of how dreadful it was, even for murderers, to be in such a fix. I says to myself, There ain't no telling, but I might come to be a murderer myself one day yet, and then how would I like it? So I says to Jim, first fight we see will land 100 yards below it or above it where there's a good hiding place for you in the skiff, and then I'll go and fix up some kind of yarn and get somebody to go for that gang and get them out of their scrape so they can be hanged when their time comes. Huck, in other words, feels compassion for even a gang of murderers. We've never seen this before in him. He has never shown compassion for anybody else. And certainly, Tom Sawyer never does. This is a new stage in Huck's developing character, where he has come far enough to empathize even with people who are crooks, murderers, criminals, what have you. And as a result, he goes to the ferry boat landing, and he talks to the... uh, one man on the boat who's the captain, the engineer, the watchman, the, and he says sometimes the passengers and the freight too. And he tell, this man is telling him about how he doesn't have all the money that old Jim Hornback has, and he hasn't got the uh, prestige that Jim Hornback has, but he'd rather be a sailor and he doesn't care, he doesn't, doesn't want to live the way Jim Hornback lives. Huck picks up on this immediately, and he invents a story about having sandbagged on the wreck and found there Miss, what's his, what's her name, Miss Hooper? Uh, Hooker, Miss Hooker. Hooker. And he yeah. says, uh, would you go up and take Miss Hooker off? She says, where, on the wreck? What wreck? Why, there ain't but one. What, you don't mean the Walter Scott? Yes. Good land. What are they doing there, for gracious sake? Well, they didn't go there on purpose. Well, then he tells a story about how they got stuck there. And the captain then says, By Jackson, I'd like to, and blame it, I don't know, but I will. But who in the ding nation's going to pay for it? You reckon your pap? Why, well, that's all right, says Huck. Miss Hooker, she told me in particular. that her uncle, Hornback. Great guns, is he her uncle? Looky here, and I'll have his niece safe before he can get to town. How does Huck do this, he recognizes the man's weakness, his admiration for and almost idolizing Jim Hornback, and so he invents a story that Jim Hornback's niece is on the, the boat, and immediately the captain, who's been uh, reserved about it because he doesn't see anybody's going to pay him, he's anxious to go get the, 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 the people off the boat because he thinks one of them is Miss Hornback, uh, Mr. Hornback's niece, and he's going to get paid. Uh, This is another example of Huck's marvelous command of psychology. It's um, probably the first time we see it as clearly. Huck can size up a situation and see how he can use the information that he has to get what he wants or to get what he wants done. And he does it here. We also see how Huck's facility at lying has developed. He had trouble when he was trying to lie to uh, Mrs. Loftus. Uh, He he got his name wrong. Uh, He was dressed up as a girl, but he didn't know how to act like a girl, and she spotted him as a boy immediately. But Huck doesn't make that kind of mistake again. He not only has a terrific command of psychology, but he has a tremendous ability to lie and make people believe him. He's the greatest liar in all of American literature. And the interesting thing about that is we usually think of lying as a bad quality. But when Huck lies, he lies to produce results which turn out to be very positive. Very good things come from Huck's lies. So uh, this also is a suggestion, one of the facts about this book that Huck sees himself as a bad person doing bad things when actually
2: he often
0: is a very good person doing very good things but not realizing it. He thinks he was born bad and that he will always be bad. And that's really the, uh, the crux of this whole center section of the book, the Huck development of Huck's character. All right, so the Walter Scott episode ends with uh, Huck having gotten the uh, captain to go and uh, get the people off the boat. It is followed by a three-chapter section, which has nothing to do with the shore. There are three chapters that take place on the boat, and they center on the relationship between Huck and Jim which is complicated. Remember we said at the end of this first section, Jim doesn't tell Huck whose body he found in the the house, the floating house, because Jim didn't trust Huck. And Huck plays a bad trick on Jim with the rattlesnake skin when he puts the snake skin in Jim's bed and the uh, snake's mate comes along and bites Jim. So now Huck Finn is beginning to change. Chapter 14 is comic relief. The chapter is called Was Solomon Wise? And it introduces again the theme of royalty and nobility and who's noble and who isn't. It follows Huck's own noble action regarding the three desperados on the boat. But Huck doesn't see it. It also looks forward to the coming of the king and the duke, which will be four or five chapters down the road. Chapter 14, then, is not only comic relief, but at the same time, a commentary on the theme of what is noble good conduct and what is not. Chapter 15 is Huck's last Tom Sawyer's prank on Jim. The raft is lost in the fog. Uh, Huck is chasing it in the skiff. Jim is on the raft. They can't get together. They get twisted up in among of islands. Uh, they are screaming to each other, who- whooping to each other, but they can't finally get together until the fog clears. And Huck falls asleep. When he wakes up on the raft, he te- teases Jim and thinking that he never uh, was away from the raft. He says, uh, "What? Well, you must have dreamed it, Jim. I weren't uh, I didn't go anywhere. At the end of this section, Jim walks into the... Wigwam, and doesn't say a word. And then I find this. Jim looked at the leaves and rubbish on the raft right and the smashed door and he looked at me and back at the trash again. He'd got the dream fixed so strong in his head he couldn't seem to shake it loose and get the facts back into place again right away. But when he did get the thing straightened around he looked at me steady without ever smiling and he says, what do these things stand for? Well, I ask want to tell you. When I got all wore out with work and was calling you, went to sleep, my heart was most broke because you's lost, and I didn't see no more what had become of me in the raft. And when I wake up and find you back again, all safe and sound, tears come, and I could have got down on my knees and kissed your foot. i so thankful. And all you was thinking about was how you could make a fool of old Jim and with a lie. Now, that truck there is trash and trash. Is what people is to put dirt on the head of their friends makes them shamed. Then he got up slow and walked to the wigwam. Went in there without saying anything but that. But that was enough. It made me feel so mean I could almost kissed his foot to get him to take it back. It was 15 minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to a nigger, but i done it, and I weren't ever sorry for it afterwards, neither. I didn't do him no more mean tricks, and I wouldn't have done that one if I'd have known it it would make him feel that way. Huge step forward in Huck's advance. Huge. He suddenly realizes that the tricks he's playing on Jim are hurting Jim. And he doesn't want to hurt Jim. And he defies the conventions of his society by humbling himself to a black man. This is astounding behavior. Would Tom Sawyer ever do that? I doubt it. No. Would anybody in the, in the town of St. Petersburg do that? No. No way. Think of how Huck's father would react to the idea of uh, apologizing to a black man for something. Huge step forward in Huck's development. And it's tested right away in the next chapter. Chapter 16, The Rattlesnake Skin Does Its Work. Rattlesnake skin apparently was a terrible, terrible uh, uh, cause of evil in, in um, the uh, folklore of, the, of that time and place. And Huck uh, mentions earlier he's afraid the rattlesnake skin, or, or Jim does, it's not done with its evil work. Well, it wasn't done. At least, uh, Jim is now getting close to Cairo. By the way, uh, C-A-I-R-O in Illinois is pronounced Cairo. It's Cairo in Egypt, but it's Cairo in Illinois. And the plan is, when they get to Cairo, that's where the Ohio River joins the Mississippi, the plan is to stop in Cairo, get on a steamboat going up the Ohio into the free states, and then be out of trouble, and Jim would be free. Well, fog, of course, causes trouble, and they're not sure where Cairo is, and they're not sure uh, what town is, is they're at. So... Jim, meanwhile, starts talking about how he's going to act when he becomes free. He's going to work very hard, earn every cent, save every cent, and buy his wife out of slavery first. And then they'd both work to buy the two children. And if their master wouldn't sell them, they'd get an abolitionist to go steal them out of slavery. Huck says, most froze me to hear such talk. He would never dared to talk like that in his life before. See what a difference it made in him the minute he judged he was about free. Just according to the old saying, give a nigger an engine, he'll take an L. Think, I this is what comes of my not thinking. Here was this nigger, which I had good as helped to run away, coming right out flat-footed and saying he'd steal his children, children that belonged to a man I didn't even know, man that hadn't done me no harm. I was sorry to hear Jim say that; it was such a lowering of him. My conscience got to stirring me up hotter than ever. Till at last I says to it. Lord, up on me. It ain't too late yet. I'll paddle ashore at first light, and I'll tell. After that, I felt easy and happy and light. It's a feather right off. All my troubles was gone. I went to looking out sharp for a light and sort of singing to myself. By and by, a light showed, and Jim sings out, We safe, Huck, we safe. Jump up, crack your heels. That's good old Cairo last. I just knows it is. I says, I'll take the canoe and go find out, Jim. may not be, you know. He jumped, got the canoe ready, put his old coat in the bottom of it for me to set on, give me the paddle, and as I shoved off, he says, Pretty soon I'll be shouting for joy, and I'll say, It's all on account of Huck. I was a free man, and I couldn't ever have been free if it hadn't been for Huck. Huck done it. Jim won't ever forget you, Huck. You're the best friend Jim's ever had. You're the only friend old Jim's got now. And Huck goes paddling off. And he's intending to tell on Jim. And he meets two men in a couple of uh, a skiff, I guess it is, with some guns. And they say, what's that yonder? Piece of raft, I says. You belong on it? Yes, sir. Any men on it? Only one, sir. Well, there's five niggers run off tonight up yonder by the head of the bend. Is your man white or black? <clears throat> I didn't answer up prompt. I've tried to, but the words wouldn't come. Tried for a second to brace up and out with it, but I weren't mad enough, and the spunk of a rabbit. I see I was weakening, so I just gave up trying, and I says, he's white. Reckon we'll go and see for ourselves. And now, what does Huck do? I wish you would, says I, because it's Pat that's there, and maybe you'll help him tow the raft ashore. And the light is, he's sick, so is Ma'am and Marianne. And then they start. To, they start out to do it. And then somebody says, hmm, what's the matter with your pap? And Huck doesn't say anything. He just says, well, oh, he ain't real sick. It ain't nothing. And by saying this kind of thing and by telling them as if he wants them to come, he gets them to stop when they think the man has smallpox. And not only do they not go to the raft and look and see if the man is actually uh, pap uh, Huck's father or a a sick man, they actually turn the other way and give Huck $20 gold piece piece each because uh, they don't want to uh, come in contact with somebody with smallpox. Again, Huck's tremendous command of psychology, in order to get them to do what he wants them to do, he tells them he wants them to do exactly what he doesn't want them to do and gives them uh, of an inbuilt fear of doing it by not saying what the problem is. This is unbelievably brilliant work. Ever seen anybody actually operate that way? Uh, it's hard to believe that uh, anybody could actually think of doing this and uh, get away with it. Well, Huck goes back to the raft, and, and they find out it isn't Cairo. They probably went past Cairo in the uh, in the fog. And sure enough, when it was daylight, here was the clear Ohio River water inshore, and sure enough, and outside was the old regular muddy, so it was all up with Cairo. If you go down to Cairo, Illinois today, you can actually see the Ohio River running in a channel the east side of the Mississippi, and the Mississippi with the muddy dark water uh, flowing downstream beside the clear water stream in the same riverbed. It takes them about 100 miles before the two rivers thoroughly mix. It's really fascinating to see. Um, I've been on the, the steamboats on the Mississippi River, and I've seen them myself. And you can actually see the Ohio River water, which looks different from the Mississippi River water, flowing side by side in the same channel. So, All right, now that they uh, can't find Cairo, what do they do? Well, the idea is they're going to float further down the raft uh, on the raft, and finally they'll find a place where they can buy a canoe and uh, come back up north. But in the meantime, they meet a steamboat coming up river. We heard pounding along. We couldn't see her till she was close. She aimed right for us. Often they do that, try to see how close they can come without touching. Sometimes the wheel bites off a sweep, and the pilot sticks his head out and laughs, thinks he's mighty smart. Well, here she comes, and we said she was going to try and shave us, but she didn't seem to be shearing off a bit. She was a big one, and she was coming in a hurry, too, looking like a black cloud with little rows of glowworms around it. All of a sudden, she bulged out, big and scary, with a long row of wide-open furnace doors shining like red-hot teeth, and her monstrous bows and guards hanging right over us. There was a yell at us and a jingling of bells to stop the engines and a pot while cussing and whistling of steam... And as Jim went overboard on one side and I on the other, she'd come smashing straight through the raft. I dived, I aimed for the bottom, too. A 30-foot wheel had got to go over me, and I wanted it to have plenty of room. I could always stay underwater a minute. This time I reckon I stayed under a minute and a half. And I bounced for the top in a hurry. I was nearly busted. I popped out to my armpits and blowed the water out of my nose and puffed a bit. Of course there was a booming current, and of course that boat started her engines again ten seconds after she stopped him. They never cared much for ratsmen. So now she was churning along upriver out of sight in the thick weather, though so I could still hear her. I sung out for Jim about a dozen times and didn't get any answer. So I grabbed a plank that touched me while I was treading water and struck out for shore, shoving it ahead of me. But I made out to see that drift of the current was towards the left-hand shore, which meant I was in a crossing. So I changed off and went that way. It was one of those long, slanting two-mile crossings, so it was a good time in getting over uh, the channel crosses from the west side of the river here to the east side. I couldn't see but a little waves, when I went poking over the rough ground and a quarter mile or more, and then I run across a big old-fashioned double log house before I noticed it. I was going to rush by and get away, but a lot of dogs jumped out and went to howling and barking at me, and I knowed better than to move another peg. All right, Huck and Tim have been separated. The raft has been damaged by the steamboat, and Huck now is standing in front of the Grangerford House. And this is our third part of this episode, of this uh, second section, so the second shore episode, the episode of the Grangerford uh, and uh, Shepherdson feud. When Mark Twain wrote this, um, approximately 1882 or 3, something like that, the great feud in West Virginia and Kentucky. Between the um, well, uh, Hatfields, the, the I'm sorry, Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah, the Hatfields and McCoys it was front page news, and Twain used that uh, feud as a background for these two chapters. Hmm. All right, what kind of people are these? These are the uh, Rangerfords. They are the aristocracy of this part of the of Kentucky. Uh, old Mr. Grangerford wears a white suit, as Mark Twain himself did later in life. You know. um, and he has a couple of sons, and uh, his young son Buck. And they have land, they have property, they have wealth. Uh, they are a leading family. The other leading family is the Shepherdson family, and there's a feud been going on between the Grangerfords and the sons and the Shepherdsons. And uh, nobody knows what it's about, but every once in a while they kill one of each other off. Uh, how senseless how totally senseless is a blood feud in any case and especially when it takes place among the so-called most sophisticated most upstanding people in a frontier community barely a step removed from pure savagery what what are the Separatsons and the Grangerfords like well the Shepherdsons and the Grangerfords are uh, what you call the, the classy people. But when they go to church, as they do in this, uh, they go to the same little backwards church, they listen to the preacher talking about uh, brotherly love and such like tiresomeness. What do they bring with them? Guns. What do they bring oh. with them to the church? They bring their guns along, keeping them between their knees or standing handy against the wall. How devastating an image. Think of this. Here they are sitting in church listening to brotherly love while the two families are trying to kill each other off with a blood feud and actually bring their guns to church and keep them in their hands while listening to the preacher talk about uh, such orneriness uh, as uh, brotherly love. The people all say what a good sermon it was, and they spend Sunday in contemplation of faith and good works and they spend their lives trying to kill off their neighbors. They're all listening to the preacher, but is anybody hearing the message? Now, just as we can take symbolic significance from the wrecked Walter Scott applying to the Old South, nobody can read, well, you can't read this passage without thinking of it as a satire. The apparent subject is fighting and feuding families, but the deeper target is all those folks in any place and at any time who metaphorically are taking their guns to church and paying as little attention to the message as the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons do. (laughs) So you can really read the feud episode in at least three ways. First, as a story of romance and tragedy similar to Romeo and Juliet, the play, although in this instance, a presumably happier ending for the lovers, if not for the kinsmen. Secondly, you can read it as an attack on the absurdity of such behavior at such a time and a place. And thirdly, one can see it as a satire, I talked about satire last week, last month, in which the real targets are not the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons, but all those people, anywhere and everywhere and at any time whatsoever, who act so foolishly and without understanding of themselves and their circumstances. I'm not going to go into the details of the feud. Suffice it to say that the end of Chapter 18 finds Buck, who has befriended Huck, the young man who's about Huck's age, and all the other ma- uh, male Grangerfords are dead. And Huck is sickened from the violence which he's been forced to witness, and which he himself unwittingly precipitated. How did he precipitate it? Because Miss Sophia asked him to go back to um, the church uh, with the message that was in the prayer book. And uh, he delivers her note and uh, returns, you know, not thinking anything about it. What the note obviously arranged was how she was going to run away with Harney Shepardson that night. And that's what causes the fighting to break out again. So Huck has had a uh, not intentional part in bringing on the climax of the feud. Uh, It's a very brilliant chapter for another reason. Not only is all this stuff in it, but there's also a terrific piece of comic relief in this chapter, and that is the art and poetry of Emmeline Grangerford. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: I want to read you a passage of this. Try reading this and not laughing out loud. It's almost impossible. They had pictures on the walls, and then uh, there were some that were called crayons, which one of the daughters, which was dead, made her own self when she was 15 years old. They was different from any pictures I'd ever seen before, blacker mostly than is common. One was a woman in a slim black dress belted small under the armpits with bulges like cabbage in the middle of the sleeves and a big black scoop-shovel bonnet with a black veil and slim white ankles crossed about with black tape and very tiny black slippers like a chisel. And she was leaning pensive on a tombstone on her right elbow under a weeping willow and her other hand was hanging down her side holding a white handkerchief in a reticule and beneath the picture it said, "'Shall I never see thee more, alas!' Another was a young lady with her hair all combed up straight to the top of her head and knotted there in front of a comb like a chair back and she was crying into a handkerchief and had a dead bird lying on its back in her other hand with its heels up and beneath the picture it said, I shall never hear thy sweet chirp more, alas. And then there was one where a young lady was at the window looking up at the moon and tears running down her cheeks. And she had an open letter in one hand with black sealing wax showing on one edge of it and she was mashing a locket with a chain to it against her mouth, and underneath the picture it said, And art thou gone? Yes, thou art gone, alas. Just about everything Line Granger did was alas. And then there was the, the picture that she never finished, a picture of a young woman in a long white gown standing on the rail of a bridge, all ready to jump off, with her hair all down her back, and looking up to the moon with tears running down her face. And she had two arms folded across her, chest, her breast, and two arms stretched out in front, and two more reaching up to the moon. The idea was to see which pair would look best and scratch out all the other arms. But as I was saying, she died before she got her mind made up. (laughs) So now they kept this picture over the head of the bed in her room, and every time her birthday came, they hung flowers on it. The young woman in the picture had kind of a nice, sweet face, but there were so many arms, it made her look too spidery, seemed to me. (laughs) Now, Envision this, and tell me this isn't hilarious. It is. This is the way Mark Twain beguiles you. In the midst of this serious chapter, this br- this brutal blood feud chapter, is this tremendously hilarious comic piece. Her poetry is uh, somewhat akin to her art. oh to Stephen Dowling Botts. Oh yes. Yeah. And did young Stephen sicken? And did young Stephen die? And did the sad hearts thicken, and did the mourners cry? No, such was not the fate of young Stephen Dowling Botts. Though sad hearts round him thickened, 'twas not from sickness shots. Though no whooping cough did rack his frame, nor measles dear with sprouts, not these impaired the sacred name of Stephen Dowling Botts. Despised love struck not with woe that head of curly knots. Nor stomach troubles laid him low, young Stephen Dowling Bots. Oh no, then list with tearful eye, whilst I his fate do tell. His soul did from this cold world fly by falling down a well. They got him out and emptied him. Alas, it was too late. His spirit was gone for to sport aloft in the realms of the good and great. And then, of course, the, uh, the devastating commentary. If Lane Grangerford could make poetry like that before she was 14, there ain't no telling what she could have done by, by. <laughs> Can you imagine an adult version of this kind of poetry? <laughs> All right, so that's the, um, the few chapters. Uh, it concludes with Chapter 18, Why Harney Wrote Away for His Hat. And, of course, he wrote away, uh, away the way he came, not to get his hat, but to avoid getting killed on the eve of his wanting to uh, run off with Miss Sophia. And then comes the story of the fighting the next day and how uh, Huck is led to the raft by his own uh, personal slave, Jack. He takes him there, and and, uh, there, he doesn't actually show him it. He says, just go in there, and you'll see the water moccasins or whatever it is. And he goes in there, and, of course, there's Jim with the raft in there. Go back on the river. So that's the feud episodes. Uh, The feud episode is a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Uh, You could never find anything um, more beautifully put together, more devastatingly cruel, and at the same time, more hilariously funny. All right. uh, What what time will we have? Ten minutes to see. And and Uh, also, Ira,
1: Jim, Huck said the rap. He said, I'm home again. Remember the rap. They're somewhere yeah, there. Yeah, they didn't fix the raft. And that, that impressed me. I said, aha, back to home, the raft. Yep. We got about ten You said there weren't no home
0: like a raft after all. <laughs> Other places do seem so cramped up and smothering, but a raft yeah. don't. You feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft. Okay. So they're back in Eden again, but not for long. Three days and three nights come by, and they're in a little town. And uh, oh, before they do that, there's this picture of the dawn on the river. Uh, He does this in several of his books. Notably, he does it in Tom Sawyer, in Life in the Mississippi, and in Huckleberry Finn. It's the beginning of Chapter 19, um, The Picture of Dawn on the River. I'm not going to try to read it because I want to move on, but uh, it's a beautiful piece of writing describing Dawn on the River. Okay. Okay. Uh, One morning about daybreak, I found a canoe and went over to the town, and uh, he sees these two guys. Where a cow path across a creek. Here comes a couple of men tearing up the path as tight as they could foot it. I thought I was a goner for wherever anybody was after anybody I judged were after me, or maybe Jim. I was about to get out of there in a hurry, but they was pretty close to me then, and they t- sung out and begged me to save their lives. Said they hadn't been doing nothing and was being chased for it, and there was men and dogs coming. They wanted to jump right in, but I says, don't you do it. I don't hear the dogs and horses yet. You got time to crowd through the bush get up the creek a little ways and take to the water, then wade down to me and get in. That'll throw the dogs off the set. Well, they do, and they are those nameless uh, rapscallions, two of the uh, most marvelous depictions of uh, criminal behavior in all of literature, the king and the duke. Of course, neither one of them is a king or a duke. They're a bunch of um, con men, and they've been working the towns, uh, and they got, uh, they do camp meetings, and they do uh, patent medicine, and they do, um, <laughs> shall we say, theater. <laughs> we'll see that in a little while. They do anything to make a buck. And neither one of them is trustworthy. They don't trust each other. They're up one-upping each other. They don't know each other. They just both happen to come together in the town. And they are going to be the means by which the. Eden of the River of Journey, the Eden of the Raft, is corrupted and eventually destroyed. Well, they get on the raft, and uh, they decide that um, the duke says first, I am really a, I'm really a noble duke. To think <laughs> I, should, I should be leading such a life in, in such company. The old one, the old bald man says, what? Ain't the company good enough for you? And the duke says, oh, yes, 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 uh, blah, 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 blah. My great-grandfather was the eldest son of the Duke of Bridgewater, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he says, well, would you mind uh, if we call you uh, your grace or my lord or your lordship, et cetera. Well, the king is uh, silent for a little while. He, the other one is silent for a little while. And then he comes up with the uh, statement that he is actually the Dauphin of France, the uh, son of Louis Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, who uh, disappeared and um, was probably killed around 1790-something. Well, he's about the right age. He would be uh, 60-something today, and this is about 1840. So he takes uh, he one-ups the duke by calling himself a king. And if you say uh, things, nice things to the duke, you, you should say even nicer things to the king. And then the king and the duke go to work. Chapter 20 what royalty did to Parkville. Mm. Now, who, are the, who are the people of Parkville? What are they like? What are the people of Parkville like? Are they bad people? You know, they're in this um, camp meeting. <clears throat> and uh, the camp meeting is a, kind of a big, uh, what would you say, it's a combination religious meeting, but also it's a combination of an uh, outdoor picnic and of a kind of a, it's kind of a uh, social occasion. King decides he's going to work the camp meeting, and he uh, says he's a pirate from the Indian Ocean, and he takes up a collection and he collected eighty seven dollars and seventy five cents and a three gallon jug of whiskey that he found under a wagon. Uh, <laughs> well, that wasn't bad. The Duke, meanwhile, was uh, setting up, set up a uh, printed little job for farmers at the printing office that wasn't his, and he took the money. And he got $10 of advertisements for the newspaper, which he said he would put in for $4 if they'd pay in advance, and then he's going to walk off with the $4. The price of the paper was $2 a year, but he took in three subscriptions for $0.50 cents a piece on paying him in advance. And he set up a little poetry. He took in 9 dollars and a half and thought he'd done a pretty square day's work for it. And then uh, he also prints up this handbill that shows Jim as a runaway slave. Jim recognizes that... Uh, <laughs> these, uh, this king smells sort of bad, <laughs> uh, and which gets us into a discussion later about how these, uh, you know, brigands who uh, Huck knows, of course, immediately are not really uh, real, um, not really royalty. Are not much different than real royalty. <laughs> you can't tell the real ones from the fakes. All right, this leads us up to Chapter 21, an Arkansas difficulty. This is the chapter in which they come to the Riverside Town. Uh, see, is the name of it? Does it have a name? I don't, I'm not even sure which, uh, which I don't recall is. a name. No. I don't either, but it, I think it has one, but I don't recall it. Anyway, with the loafers and the uh, setting a dog on fire, and, oh, just awful, awful.
1: Horrible, yeah.
0: people in uh, Polkville were nice people, just easily misled, naive, uh, a little bit dense. These people are just nasty. And while they're in the town, the countryman Boggs comes riding in, drunk as a lord, and he's after Colonel Sherburn, who he says cheated him. Sherburn is the big merchant in town. Sherburn is fed up with Boggs, and when Boggs causes too much trouble, Sherburn Sherburn takes his pistol, levels it at Boggs, and shoots him. Kills him in the street in cold blood. Well, this... This, by the way, mirrored something that actually happened in Hannibal while Twain was a boy. And uh, he, he saw the, the thing happen, and he saw the, the um, countryman, whose name was Sam Smarr, saw him lying on the floor of the drugstore with this heavy Bible lying on his chest, and he stops breathing. Who do you suppose it was who was sent to get the heavy Bible? Sam Clemens. Sam Clemens. And, yeah, and he went, brought the heavy Bible back, and of course... Uh, then he thought that the heavy Bible he had brought was what killed Sam Smar, and he had conscious terrible conscience problems so about that for a while. okay, The result of this is the townspeople led by their half man uh whose name was uh, who was it Buck Harkness, try to Lynch Sherburn, or at least make a move to Lynch sherburne and this is chapter twenty two Why the Lynching Bee Failed. This is one of the key chapters in the book. I have mentioned before that in any great piece of literature, almost anything, look at what is in the center of the book. Now, there are 43 chapters in Huckleberry Finn. This is chapter 22, the dead center of the book. can't get more centered than that. And what do we find in this chapter? Colonel Sherburn stands off this whole mob of people who he knows are really cowards. He says, the average man's a coward. You're cowards. If there's any lynching to be done, it'll be done Southern style at night. So take your half man and get away from me. I was born in the South, raised in the South, lived in the North. I know all what people are like all around. And the average man's a coward. And a mob is a, a mob of cowards who take uh, energy from each other that they don't have alone. This is clearly Mark Twain talking about uh, how mob psychology works and how horrible a thing it can be. I always had mixed feelings about Colonel Sherburn. Uh, he's a, 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 a you know he's a murderer, and yet he has more presence about him, uh, more more brains about him, more understanding of people than almost anybody else in the in the novel. He maybe doesn't use them the way we'd like to see those qualities used. But there is something special about Colonel Sherburne. He's not just one of those town loafers. Not one of the, uh, the half men, as he said, as he calls Macartas. Well, after the lynching bee fails, because he confronts them and talks them down. You say, lynch him, lynch him!" you're afraid to back down, because you're afraid you'll be found out for what you are, cowards. So, you raise a yell and hang yourselves under that half man's tail coat. That's what an army is. The most pitiless thing out is as as a mob. That's what an army is it's a mob. They don't fight with courage It's born in them, but with courage it's borrowed from their officers and, their, and from their mass. And a mob without a man at the head of it is beneath pitifulness. Now that's Colonel Sherburn talking. Right after that, immediately after, Huck goes to the circus and is duped by the uh, clown dressed up as uh, the ringmaster and the rider. Uh, In other words, Huck's credulity is still present. And that night, the uh, king and the duke produce uh, (laughs) their show, which was supposed to be Shakespeare. Uh, It didn't produce more than about 12 people. So this is when the uh, duke comes and prints up at the courthouse three nights only, Garrick the Younger and King the Elder in the thrilling tragedy of the King's Camel Leopard or the Royal Nunsuch. Admission 50 cents. And at the bottom, the biggest line of all, ladies and children not admitted. There, says he. If that line don't fetch them, I don't know Arkansas. Oh boy. <laughs> the Duke uh, has some knowledge of human nature too as Colonel Sherburn does. What's this chapter really about? It's about the different aspects of human nature. How people can be very, very good and at the same time be very, very evil. Same people at different times. Different people at all times. Mark Twain is famous for having said that man is the only animal that can blush or needs to. And he, was a very, he had a very cynical attitude about the people. And it shows up in this chapter uh,
1: notoriously. Ira, are, you, you, Ira, you may want to open a yeah. question, but I want to ask you uh, something. Uh, the, but the people, the townspeople, were so bad that they didn't say the play was bad, right? They said, let's tell everybody it's wonderful and get them in the next night and oh, the no, night out. No, that's,
0: that's after the scene Am I
1: correct uh, I'm sorry? The
0: first night, they're going to do Shakespeare, and then nobody comes. Right. When they actually do the royal nonsuch, they okay. feel taken, but they're going to uh, not allow themselves to be taken without Alone. having everybody else taken first. Right,
1: right. That's yeah. what I but wanted that's, to say. That's said. coming Let's up. That, no, we haven't good. got to that yet. Oh, I'm I want sorry. to do one
0: okay. more chapter before we okay. uh, open up for questions. Very good.
1: Okay. Sorry. Uh, and
0: that's chapter <laughs> 23, which continues the center of the novel.
1: <clears throat> and the
0: important thing about this chapter is, this is the one where they do the royal nonsuch. Yes. And uh, the second night, the rest of the town comes, and they get uh, taken. And the third night, the king never went uptown at all. The duke uh, got away you know, after uh, sending up the curtain, and uh, they all got off with uh, 400 and whatever dollars, $487 or whatever it is. All right. That's the action of the chapter. But the most important part of the chapter comes at the very end. I went to sleep. Well, I, he's talking to Jim, and uh, he says, what was the use of telling Jim these weren't real kings and dukes? Wouldn't have done no good, and you couldn't tell them from the real kind anyway. Now, here's the important thing. I went to sleep. Jim didn't call me when it was my turn. He often done that. When I waked up just at daybreak, he was sitting with his head down betwixt his knees and moaning and mourning to himself. I didn't take notice, and let on. I knowed what it was about. He was thinking about his wife and his children way up yonder, and he was low and homesick, because he had never been away from home before in his life, and I do believe he cared just as much for his people as white folks does for theirs. Don't seem natural, but I reckon it's so. He was often moaning and mourning that way nights when he judged I was asleep, and saying, poor little Elizabeth, poor little Johnny, mighty hard I expect I ain't never going to see you no more, no more. was a mighty good nigger, Jim was. But this time I somehow got to talking to him about his wife and young ones. By and by he says, What makes me feel so bad this time is because I hear something yonder on the bank like a whack, or a slam a while ago. And it mind me of the time I treated my little Elizabeth so ornery. She weren't only about four years old, and she took the scarlet fever and had a powerful rough spell, but she got well. And one day she was a-standin' around, and I says to her, I says, Shut the dough. she never done it just stood there, kind of smiling up at me. Made me mad, and I says again, mighty loud, I says, Don't you hear me? Shut the door. He just stood the same way, kind of smiling up. I was bilin and I said, I lay, I make you mine. And with that, I fetched her a slap, side of the head, and son sprawling. Then I went into the other room there, and I was going about ten minutes, and when I come back, there was that door standing open yet, and the child standing most right in it, looking down and mourning, and Tears running down. My, but I was mad. I was, for, I was going for the child, but just then, it was the door that was open. Uh, just then, along comes to wind and slam it, too, behind my child. Kablam! In my land, the child never moved. My breath must hop out of me, and I feel so... so I don't know how I feel. I crope out, all trembling, Crope around in the open... The door is easy, open up slow, and poke my head in behind the child, soft and still, and then all of a sudden I says, Pow! Just as loud as I could yell it. She'd never budge. Oh, Huck, I burst out cry crying to grab her up in my arms, and I say, Oh, the poor little thing, The oh, Lord God Almighty, forgive poor old Jim. Was he never going to forgive himself as long as he lived? Oh, she's plumb, diff, and dumb, Huck. Plumb, deaf and dumb, and I've been a-treating so. Okay. This is the center of the novel. These two twin chapters, one showing man at his worst and one showing a supposedly a subhuman individual, a black person, a slave, subhuman. I'm surprised that maybe black people feel the same thing for their kids as white people feel for theirs. What's the point? The center of the novel, the core of Huckleberry Finn, is about the inexplicable dual nature of people. Now, uh, you want to stop here? Yes, we can do yeah, the we can do the last part of this section,
1: the uh, Wilkes scenes, in the next time we do it. Okay, that's all Oh, that is really good. Yes. And then we can have some time for questions now. All right, let's see if uh, we have any uh, questions. Bonnie, do you have any first? And I know I have one.
2: Well, actually, he seems to be talking a lot about heaven and hell, good and evil. You see those concepts over and over. What was it that he was saying as a way that people at that time, living at that time, could have Eden or as close to Eden as we would have on Earth? Do you have any thoughts about how he would tell them they could achieve that in the way they lived?
0: Oh, well, he, he tells us in the book uh, what's wrong with, the, with society people who uh, refuse to see reality, people who create a group image and then um, believe in it. All blacks are slaves. In order to to justify making them slaves, we have to make them stupid. Uh, They're not really human. They're less less than fully human. It's this kind of thinking. What the book is about is not slavery. It's about the kind of thinking that makes slavery possible. Thinking and creating straw men and then uh, acting as if they're real. Refusal to see the truth. Let me read a passage here. This whole central section of Huckleberry Finn depicting life along the banks of the Mississippi River is virtually a catalog of human misbehavior. Through Huck's eyes, we witness murder, attempted murder, mob violence, robbery, cruelty, deceit, sloth, ignorance, greed, the worst aspects of slavery, and heaven knows how many other sins. Yet these evils are so camouflaged with comedy that the reader tends to gloss over the horrors. In a phrase made famous by Sherlock Holmes, one sees but one does not observe. That's the way I think it can be thought of. This is... A book about how do we know as people capable of both the greatest good and the greatest evil? How do we know what is correct conduct? What standards can we use? One of the standards that he, he uses in this section is the standards of the socially prominent. The Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons are the best people around in this area, and yet their conduct is absurd. Conducting a blood feud, murdering each other for nothing. They don't even know why they're fighting. Can you rely on socially prominent people to be guides to good and evil? Mm-hmm. Not according to this. Yeah. Then you have the good people at the camp meeting. They're good people, all right. They mean well, but they're not Sophisticated, They can't tell that they're being duped. They uh, contribute money gladly to the king to run off to the Indian Ocean and uh, convert the pirates there to, to religion. Their eyes are blinded, too. They don't see reality. They're blinded by a, a kind of religious, um, what would I say, a religious commitment that is unrealistic.
2: Well, it speaks well for today because people still either create their own or invent their own reality and don't really see reality. That's, yeah. I guess, why it's such a timely novel. Uh-huh. You got your
0: finger on it right away. That's one of the reasons why this novel is a great, timeless book, why it will never be irrelevant. 150 years or more after it was, well, 100 and, what is 140 years after it was first published, it's just as topical today as it ever was. And it will never be less topical as long as people are people.
2: I have one other last question I'd like to ask, and then I will be quiet. Um, That's all
0: right. You don't have to be quiet. Go ahead. Well, I want
2: to give other people (laughs) a chance. I talk to people a lot about timing and pacing in novels. And, of course, when a novel is written and the time period it takes place in has a lot to do with the pace of it, how fast it moves, and how much happens in a scene very often. Um, You said earlier that Mark Twain was that some people think that he is long-winded and convoluted. Certainly, I'm sure there are a lot of people who believe that's true. The same could be said of Thomas Hardy, who also wrote novels with chapter titles, and probably uh, there are many other examples as well. And I would say that this is just the way people wrote at that time. You didn't have very much happen, and when did that kind of... Thing come about where people started putting names to chapters because later that really came. Well, I don't know about the names to chapters.
0: I don't know about the thing about putting names to chapters. But but the writing.
1: When did the writing come about?
2: Yeah,
0: I can tell you that a lot
1: of novels in the
0: 18th century, when the novel was first invented, and certainly in the 19th, were written for serial publication.
2: Uh, They were published
0: first as serials and newspapers and magazines and consequently there's a lot of repetition because you have to make sure that the people knew what the last section was like and you know, what happened in the last week's last week's episode Dickens particularly is guilty of this uh, Dickens is extremely long-winded yeah very discursive my friend Rachel has been reading the Tale of Two Cities she said I read six chapters and they're still bouncing along in the same coach when is something going to happen <laughs> so
2: true that's funny
0: um, <laughs> Twain is like that on occasion. Uh, if you read Life on the Mississippi, the whole book is 500 pages long, and there's really a, a, only about 100 pages of uh, organized writing. The rest is uh, vignettes all thrown together. The reason is that Twain published by subscription. In other words, he had salesmen go out and say, the next book by Mark Twain will be coming out so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. Subscribe for your copy now, sight unseen. I guarantee you, you will get 500 pages of writing by Mark Twain. Mm. Okay? The book had to be long enough to meet the deal with what the subscribers were offering.
2: It's like a precursor to the bestseller of today.
0: Uh, in other words, he was selling by volume. You know, you see it on the cereal package. This is sold by weight, not by volume. Uh, Mark Twain was selling by volume, not by weight. And he was not the only author who did this, but he was probably the most successful ever. Okay,
1: I will be lynched. There will be a lynching bee if I don't let the audience at least have one shot here with a question or two. Let's go. And who has a question?
2: Well, he is so specific with what he's talking about, and he explains everything so well. I don't have any questions.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, um, another, another try here on questions from
2: anyone. Hello, Mr. Fistel. This is Marcia Moses, and uh, I just uh, I, I actually I agree with Senna. Is Tom Sawyer also involved in this book at all? I have not read much of uh, Mark Twain, or Samuel C- uh, Clemens. You mentioned Tom Sawyer during your uh, your talk this evening. Is uh, is he involved at all in the book?
0: Tom Sawyer is very much involved in this book. If you recall last time when we discussed the first section of the book, Tom Sawyer is in the first three chapters uh, extensively. And in fact... We see Tom patronizing Jim. We see Tom, uh, as Huck looks up to him, almost like a god. And we see Tom telling uh, Huck that he can get into Tom Sawyer's gang only if he has a uh, suitable adult to be uh, tormented. And he offers him Miss Watson, and Tom says, that's all right, we'll we'll take her. You have to have social standing to get into Tom Sawyer's gang, you know. At any rate... Yes, Tom is definitely involved at the beginning. And in the third section, he comes back in person. And we see him a lot in the last 11 chapters.
1: That's the symmetry that Ira's been talking about with the 43-chapter division here of the book.
0: The 11 chapters of the first section and the 11 chapters of the last section section. are parallels in many ways. And the center section is almost exactly as long as the first and third together. It's an absolutely miraculously perfect piece
1: of construction. And Tom center
0: does appear at the first and at the end.
1: I read this is truly a masterpiece this evening. I really mean this. I've learned so much, and I know our audience has, and we want to thank you so very much for taking the time to do this for us. It's always a pleasure to do
0: it. You want to do another one? We'll, we'll do the uh, last part of this section, the last uh, oh, yes, we chapters must. of this section, 24 through 31, right. and then we'll go on and start the last section.
1: I'm with you, and I'll be in touch with you on that on a okay. date. Okay.